You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 33, Maurice Chivarella. It was 1964. On a cold Wednesday, March 18th, nine-year-old Maurice Chivarella was anxious to get to school. Maurice was bringing two cans of fruit to donate to the feast day of her teacher, one of the nuns who were the instructors at the parochial school she attended. She wanted to have time to deliver the canned beets and pears to the sister's classroom and make it to the parish church across the street to attend morning mass, which she never missed. Like the rest of the Chivarella family, Maurice was extremely religious and conscientious. Being late to Mass would not be a good way to start the day. As a rule, Maurice walked to St. Joseph Catholic Church parochial school daily with two of her older siblings. This was 11-year-old Barry and 13-year-old Carmen. But today, Maurice was eager to get going and didn't want to wait for her brother and sister. After getting permission from her mom and a hug, she set out at just before 8 a.m. to walk the short six blocks to school along the sidewalks dusted with snow from the night before. Things were different in those days 58 years ago. Kids walked alone to and from school all the time, although, as we heard, today was an exception for Maurice, who usually was accompanied by her siblings. But another thing that was different was that kids often left school at midday and came home for lunch. They would return to the school for the afternoon session only after the family's midday meal, often referred to as dinner. There was a cafeteria at the school for kids who lived too far to return home, but as a rule, the Chivarella kids walked to and fro together and ate dinner at home. And something else about the school that has changed drastically from back then. There was no system in place whereby St. Joseph's notified the parents if the kids were absent. Perhaps truancy was not a problem at the parochial school, where everyone was religiously observant of the rules and attendance requirements. And certainly, child safety was not top of mind back then. It just wasn't an issue that anyone thought much about in Hazleton, in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, population 35,000. Hazleton residents took it for granted that their kids were safe in the conservative town 80 miles from Philadelphia. Listeners can probably figure out where I'm going with this. Maurice did not show up for school that day, and no one raised the alarm. If her third-grade teacher noticed that Maurice was absent, which no doubt she did, whatever steps she took did not require the school to call the Chivarella home and inquire about her whereabouts. So no one paid any heed that Maurice was missing until lunchtime. Carmen and Barry walked home for lunch, and they were a little surprised that Maurice wasn't with them. The family thought Maurice must have stayed to eat in the school cafeteria. But when the two got back to St. Joseph's, they checked the cafeteria, and they didn't see Maurice. 
They went to the office and found out that their little sister hadn't shown up for school that morning at all. At one o'clock, Father Marenko called the Hazelton police. Maurice Chivarella was missing and had not been seen by anyone since before 8 a.m. Whoever took her had a five-hour head start. Maurice's father, Carmen Chivarella, back at the family market attached to their home, got a call that Maurice hadn't come to school. Mary, Maurice's mother, was at work at the knitting factory. Carmen hastily closed the shop and went out looking for his daughter along her route to school. Word spread throughout the Chivarella family, which had quite a few relatives living in the area, and everyone went out and pounded the pavement looking for the nine-year-old. It's hard to imagine what the Chivarellas felt. I would guess that it started with bewilderment, wondering where the heck their daughter was. Because foul play was the farthest thing from anyone's mind. It just wasn't the type of thing that happened in Hazleton, or to good people like the Chivarellas. It was also that it was the mid-60s, an era where realities like serial killers, child predators, and stranger danger were much less talked about than they are today. But a sense of dread and foreboding was probably lurking beneath the surface of the parents' confusion, because Maurice wandering off and skipping school on a whim was simply out of the question. It wasn't even an option worth considering. The Chivarella's certainty that there must be a simple explanation likely eroded rapidly as the next half hour or so ticked by. As Carmen was searching in the area around St. Joseph Church, news came that would shatter it all together. Within a half hour of Maurice being reported missing, around 1 p.m., Arthur Robinson headed to an old anthracite strip mine. This was outside Millsville, between Hazleton Municipal Airport and the town of Hollywood, where Robinson lived. Newspapers at the time reported that Robinson was planning on dumping some ashes at the abandoned strip mine pit, which had since become something of an illegal dumping ground. But at the press conference years later, police said that actually Robinson was out near the old strip mining pit teaching his 16-year-old nephew how to drive on the largely deserted dirt access road. Looking down into the pit, Robinson saw a large doll lying face up at the bottom on top of a bunch of snow-covered garbage. When he got closer, of course, he saw that it wasn't a doll at all. It was a little girl, still bound and gagged, bloodied, pale, and unmoving. Articles don't indicate whether Robinson verified that she was dead. All we know is that he sped to a phone as fast as he could and alerted the Pennsylvania State Police that there was a dead body at the stripping pit. Trooper Raymond Dobroselsky from Troop N was dispatched around 1.15 to meet him at the Hazleton Municipal Airport. Robinson then led the trooper to the scene where he found the dead body of a little girl lying at the bottom of the stripping pit, 26 feet from the embankment. Maurice's body was still slightly warm when investigators got to it, but there was nothing they could do for the little girl who was already rigid. She was identified on site by the reverends Jean Sampson and Cyril Rabel, who was the assistant pastor at St. Joseph's School. I suspect that the men of the cloth offered to be the ones to go, to spare the family from having to see their dead child dumped in a literal trash pit. They identified the girl as Maurice. Police blocked off the dirt road leading from the airport road to the strip mine. Detective Sergeant Michael Dean arrived at the scene at 1.40 p.m., and the investigation began. Carmen Chivarella learned that his daughter had been killed when a stranger on the street mentioned to the searching father that, quote, they found the Chivarella girl dead. An autopsy was conducted at Hazleton State General Hospital by Dr. Julius Folds. It determined that Maurice had been killed fairly quickly after she was abducted, sometime between 9.30 and 10 that morning. The cause of death was asphyxiation by strangulation. Her own shoelace was used to strangle her. 
She was found gagged with her own brightly colored scarf, which was shoved far down into her throat so that only a glimpse of it protruded from her mouth, and the force had knocked out her lower left cuspid. Her wrists were tied together behind her back with a lace from her shoes, her ankles with the other. She also had suffered several violent blows to the head, and one of these was sufficient to render her unconscious. An autopsy revealed evidence that she was hit on the top of her head twice and once on the right temple. Maurice had been raped. Contemporary articles reported this as, quote, the child had been ravished, a word that certainly would not be used today. A dark brown pubic hair was found stuck to her leg. Tests indicated that it came from a young or middle-aged adult. Marisa's red book bag, still filled with her lessons, books, and the canned goods, was found near her body, as was her brown pocketbook. They had been tossed into the pit along with the body and landed not far away. Maurice was fully dressed in her dark jacket and skirt and black leotard, but the autopsy discovered that her underpants were disarranged, which led them to suspect that she was sexually assaulted before the autopsy confirmed that she was. She also was not wearing her black and brown suede shoes, which were found near her body, laces removed. Knots in the shoelaces binding her limbs told investigators that they were looking for a right-handed perpetrator. It's no wonder that Mr. Robinson initially thought that the body was a doll. The nine-year-old little girl was very slim and weighed only 55 pounds. It's clear that from the get-go, the brutal murder of this pious little girl was a very big deal. All the top brass from Luzerne County Law Enforcement personally visited the dump site to survey it for themselves. This included County Coroner Dr. John Gibbons, Chief Deputy Coroner Charles Flynn, First Assistant DA Robert Horrigan, and, of course, officials from the Pennsylvania State Police, the Luzerne County Sheriff's Office, and Hazleton's own force, including Police Chief Frank Usman. The Hazleton mayor, a neighbor of the Chivarellas whose own kids played with Maurice and her siblings, said that the heinous murder, the type only read about in big cities, was a reminder that evil is constantly present even in their carefree, safe, familiar small town. The local paper, the Hazelton Standard Speaker, blared headlines about a sex maniac, a murderous fiend, an evil beast living amongst the community. It was reported that the child sex slaying was the first of its kind to occur in the region that anyone could remember. Let's take a look at who Maurice was. Maurice Ann Chivarella was born on Thanksgiving Day, 1954, in Waterloo, New York, to Carmen and Mary Chivarella. Maurice was the second youngest sibling in the family of five kids, Ronald, age 16, Carmen Marie, age 13, Barry, age 11, and eventually, after Maurice, David, age 7. As we heard, she was tiny, weighing in at under 60 pounds. Maurice had dark hair, blue eyes, and a smattering of freckles across her nose. Carmen Chivarella owned and ran the family grocery store called The Little Market, located right next to their home. There, it was a family affair, with the kids expected to pitch in and help the business run smoothly. Even at only nine years old, Maurice had been a clerk in the store on many occasions. Mary worked outside the home as well, trying to make ends meet for the family of seven. She worked at the Geisler Knitting Mill. Maurice was a member of the Junior Catholic Daughters of America. Extended family members said that although she was shy, which her siblings teased her for, Maurice was a very happy child who was also extremely sweet, polite, and helpful. She assisted at home and at the family store willingly and generously, always happy to help out. She got good grades in school and was well-liked and popular, although she was shy. 
Marisa's parents had given her an organ they bought at Sears when they saw how much she loved to play the music she heard at church. She was extremely religiously observant, and as long as anyone in her family could remember, aspired to be a nun herself one day. She would put a piece of cloth over her head and pretend that it was a habit just as the sisters at her school wore. The Chivarellas were a very close-knit family, and Marisa's murder was the second family tragedy in under two years. In March 1963, Marisa's grandmother, Veronica Polprock, who lived with the family, had been killed in a hit-and-run accident on her way to St. Joseph Hospital, where she worked as a dietary helper. Her case remains open. Truly, Maurice was such a tragic little saint of a victim that if she were a character in a movie, critics would harp on the ham-fisted imagery of innocence slain. But it was all true, and the impact on the family was indescribable. I'll let the words of Ron, Maurice's older brother who spoke to People magazine, describe it. Quote, the house was in chaos, people screaming, crying, rolling around literally on the floor, some of the aunts, because of the horror of it all. My mother was totally in shock. The family doctor was there administering some type of sedative to her. My father was like a zombie. On the instructions of Sister Clementia, the principal, St. Joseph's Parish School canceled classes and held a service in honor of Maurice. And more formally, a public viewing of Maurice was held at the Bonin Funeral Home over two days after her death. Literally thousands of people turned out, walking somberly past the casket with downcast eyes and solemn prayer utterances. If they were brave enough to look inside, they would have seen Maurice, clad in a white gown and tiara with her first communion veil, a rosary placed in her white gloved hands. Plainclothes police were among those assembled hoping to glimpse anyone suspicious among the mourners. Funeral services were held on March 21st with a requiem mass at Most Precious Blood Church, complete with boys' choir. The service was attended by hundreds of mourners who witnessed a sobbing Mary Chivarella kissing her daughter in her small white coffin before it was closed up forever. We can be reasonably sure that she is in heaven today, the Monsignor pronounced. He quoted St. Paul, saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Maurice was buried in St. Joseph's Cemetery. Vengeance would be many years off. In the days afterward, the school district and police focused on educating children about stranger danger, encouraging them to walk in groups, warning them about accepting gifts and rides from others. As for the Chivarella family, it's not hyperbole to say that Mary and Carmen mourned their daughter's senseless death every day for decades to come. The couple saved every sympathy card and memento they received about Maurice over the years. At one point in the 90s, Mary called a local media publication and asked them to help the family by spreading the word about the unsolved case. Mary said to the standard speaker, quote, I think of her every day. She is on my mind all the time. It feels like part of yourself is gone. It's as if you lost a piece of yourself. As for Carmen, Mary said he didn't talk about it, but she would see him silently crying from time to time. Okay, let's talk about where Maurice was found. Photos of what was referred to as a stripping pit or a strip mine show an old anthracite mine pit that had fallen into disuse and been abandoned and had morphed into something of a garbage dump. The pit was filled with garbage and litter, an unsanctioned spot in which people discarded household trash and all other manner of detritus. It was often populated with scrappers and pickers sifting through the garbage looking for salvageable items. When it's said that Maurice was thrown out like trash, it could not be more literal. The strip mine area was also described in local papers as a location used as a lover's lane. 
This is a little odd considering it was also a trash dump, but it did make police suspect that the killer was a local familiar with the site either because it was a dump site or because it was a place for romantic liaisons or both. It was definitely off the beaten path, not at all the kind of place an outsider would have just stumbled upon. It was accessible only via dirt roads and was kind of desolate. The location was a half mile northwest of the municipal airport and 2.5 miles from the Chivarella's home. Police quickly came to believe that Maurice was killed somewhere else. State Police Lieutenant Edward Switage stated that investigators had taken Maurice's clothing to the state police lab for analysis, which proved that her body had been placed where it was found. It had not rolled down the embankment and come to rest where it lay. They were able to determine this because her clothing was clean, without pieces of debris or stains from the garbage covering the embankment. Investigators believed this showed an element, albeit a minuscule one, of care on the part of the killer. Maurice had been carefully laid where she was found, all her belongings placed around her. So how did Maurice end up at the strip mine slash dump miles from home? Of course, this question was paramount to investigators. After talking to the family, investigators quickly surmised that the little girl had been abducted while walking to school. They knew from Mary that Maurice had left the house before eight, that she had never made it to St. Joseph's, and that she would not have deviated from her route, so this was a logical deduction. And her brother and sister, Barry and Carmen, had left for school just a few minutes after her and had never seen her along the route or at school. Maurice had never walked alone before, and she was naturally shy and was also very afraid of some neighborhood dogs that barked at the kids as they walked to school, so her siblings had done their best to try to catch up to their little sister, but she was nowhere to be seen. St. Joseph's Church and Parish School was located on North Laurel Street at West 5th Street. The Chivarella family lived at 533 Alter Street. Maurice had vanished within six blocks. Police interviewed students at the school, parents who might have accompanied their kids that day, and residents along Maurice's route. A classmate of Maurice, Mary Bazozzi, had seen her on her front porch leaving the house as Mary's father drove her to school. One man had seen her walking about a block and a half from the Chivarella home heading toward the school, and they quickly found a cousin of Mary Chivarella, Mrs. Helen Slattery, who lived along the route at 212 West 4th Street. She knew Maurice well. Helen had just sent her own three youngsters off to school, one of whom was in Maurice's class. She was inside the house feeding her new baby when she saw Maurice out the window, huddled and walking briskly in the bitter wind. Helen is believed to be the last person to see Maurice before she vanished. She reported seeing her little cousin at 8.10 a.m. along the south side of West 4th Street at Church Street, walking towards St. Joseph's. This was two and a half blocks from the school. This last sighting allowed police to narrow down the abduction zone to a fairly specific area, the four-block section of northern Hazleton that encompassed West 4th Street at Sherman Court between Church and Vine to the school. From there, she could have continued east on West 4th to Church or continued on West 4th to Laurel and then turned north towards St. Joseph's. Either way, they came to believe that somehow, some way, Maurice had been enticed or pulled into a vehicle along the latter part of her six-block walk that day. But hundreds of tips of cars seen in the area failed to lead anywhere. This was surprising, as it was a busy work and school morning. Cars would have been ubiquitous along the route Maurice took. But no one vehicle stood out, and certainly no one saw the little girl getting into a car at all. 
Her parents told police that Maurice, who was notoriously shy, would absolutely not have willingly gotten into a car with a stranger. Police theorized that she must have been forced into a vehicle somehow, perhaps with one of the blows that had been observed in her autopsy, silently and without attracting attention. She never had a chance to run or scream. Of course, they could not rule out that Maurice might have accepted a ride that cold morning from someone she knew. But if that were the case, it seemed likely the investigation would flush him out. Mary Chevarella told AB16 News decades later that she believed Maurice's abductor was parked next to the sidewalk and he pulled her into the car. The investigation was led by the Pennsylvania State Police Hazelton Troop under the command of Lieutenant Edward Swiatech. This was because Maurice's body was discovered in Hazel Township, which did not have its own police force. Luzerne County's entire detective force assisted the state police. The dump site was searched thoroughly, a painstaking process made easier by the fact that Maurice, her shoes, book bag, and purse were all discarded after the snowfall the night before, so evidence relating to her case was easily identified and collected. Lieutenant Switage told the media that, quote, evidence was uncovered. We are processing the evidence obtained so far. He could have been referring to a tire track that was frozen into the ground near the dump site. Investigators took a plaster cast of the impression, but efforts to match it to any particular vehicle failed. Lieutenant Switage would not give many details of the crime, but did acknowledge that police were looking for a sex offender. It's not clear whether he meant that the killer was an unknown sex maniac, as described by the media, or whether he meant that the killer was a specific sex offender known to police. Switage announced that investigators were looking for persons with known sexual deviation tendencies. Luzerne County District Attorney Thomas Mack said to the standard speaker, quote, We are dealing with a fiend, a sex fiend, and are doing everything possible to apprehend him quickly. Local media headlines dubbing the case, quote, the sex slang that shocked the community, emphasized just how incomprehensible and devastating Maurice's murder was. Police started with rounding up sex offenders with criminal records, assuming that Maurice's killer was so depraved he must have been on police radar. They concentrated their efforts on searching for a sex deviate, articles indicated, using the lingo of the time. Dozens of known or suspected sex offenders were brought in for questioning, and several were polygraphed at state police headquarters. It was reported that hundreds of leads were gathered by the 30-man multi-agency task force on the case in those early days. One avenue of investigation was to inquire at the local high schools as to the names of any male students who were absent on the day Maurice was killed. Presumably, it was theorized that perhaps Maurice would have trusted a teenager or perhaps even gone with him willingly. They broadened that to include all male students who had driver's licenses. They also issued an appeal to any kids who had been accosted any time in the past to please report the incident. And they conducted a neighborhood canvas, which is how they found the witnesses who had seen Maurice walking that day. They interviewed everyone who lived along Maurice's route, showing the little girl's photo to everyone in hopes that it would trigger a memory. They sent teletypes to other area law enforcement agencies, hoping to find similar crimes or suspicious persons. But on the 20th, state police reported that they had no clues as to who could have killed the third grader. Investigators really pulled out all the stops in this case. Lieutenant Switage, who had been in charge of the investigation, served as the troop's commanding officer as well as the criminal investigation's head. He worked around the clock for months. When the case was solved earlier this year, one of the original investigators, Donald Good, spoke at the press conference. 
He remembered that for those first few months, the team worked seven days a week and allowed themselves only a few hours sleep a night. If they knocked off at 3 a.m., they were back at the station at 6, ready for the morning briefing. All leaves, vacations, and days off were canceled. One state trooper actually suffered a heart attack, possibly stress-related. This went on through July 1964. It wasn't sustainable, and it didn't solve the case, but it does show the dedication of the investigators responding to calls of the community for justice for the innocent child who had been so senselessly and brutally victimized. As an example of how far-reaching the investigation was, consider a string that was found on Maurice's clothing. A trooper was dispatched to apparel factories to try to match the string to a particular fabric. State police leadership called the Chivarella case the most extensive investigation in modern memory. However, one thing that I couldn't find whether it was done was the utilization of tracking dogs. If police had employed scent dogs along Maurice's route, they might have had a better idea of exactly where she was abducted. It's not clear why this wasn't done right away. They seemed to be 100% confident that she was abducted by a perpetrator in a vehicle, so they knew the scent would end abruptly. Perhaps they felt that they had a clear sense of the two-block area where Maurice was taken, based on her cousin Helen's sightings of her, and they canvassed the six blocks thoroughly so they didn't need the dogs. Anyway, on March 28th, more than a week after the murder, police issued an appeal for anyone to come forward who traveled on Airport Road between Route 309 and Route 29, between 8 a.m. and noon on the day Maurice died. While they got some tips, none panned out. A month out, reports in the media were that investigators were starting over from scratch, rechecking everything they had done in the first four weeks of the investigation. Never a good sign. By that point, several hundred people had been interviewed, and the investigation was deemed the largest ever in the region, but there were no suspects. Let's talk about a similar crime. Maurice's case brought to mind that of another child murder that happened four years earlier in 1961 in Centralia, Pennsylvania. On the morning of July 11th, 13-year-old Mary Jane Benfield left her house to deliver a jelly jar to a neighbor who lived three blocks away. Mary Jane was never seen again until her body was found in the bottom of a strip mine pit at Aristes Mountain. She had been raped and beaten over the head. 29-year-old traveling salesman Frank Earl Senk, who had a history of sex crimes, was arrested and charged in her rape and murder. After a witness told police they saw Mary Jane getting into a car, police linked to Senk. Senk confessed to attacking Mary Jane and bludgeoning her with a rock when she tried to run away from him. He was found guilty and sentenced to death in the electric chair. After Maurice was killed, the Benfield parents sent the Chivarellas a letter expressing their condolences and offering words of understanding of their loss. Mary Jane's killer, Sank, obviously did not kill Maurice, since he was in prison when she died, but he is the chief suspect in the disappearance and presumed murder of Rebecca Ann Triska, age 15, who was last seen on September 19, 1958, after leaving a dance in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. She was seen getting into a car with a young, white male. Frank Earl Sank was arrested for her abduction after his car matched the vehicle Rebecca was seen getting into, and police found out that Sank had been at the Triska home just two weeks earlier in his job as a knife salesman. He was also spotted trolling the Triska neighborhood in the days before Rebecca vanished. In a search of Sank's vehicle, police collected red hairs and blood. Sank said he was with his girlfriend at the time of the disappearance, and his girlfriend supported this story. He was released due to lack of evidence, but remains the prime suspect in Rebecca's presumed murder. 
As of 2019, the police had not tested the hairs found in Sank's vehicle to see if they belonged to Rebecca. Frank Sank died in prison of cancer before his execution could be carried out. So let's talk about some suspects. I have to imagine that Arthur Robinson, the man who found Maurice's body, was looked at as an initial suspect. He was a mechanic at Goldsworthy's service station and an army reservist. Robinson was the father of four young children and was described as a likable chap by the Hazelton Standard Speaker. I don't know how Robinson was ruled out, but I can guess his nephew, whom he was teaching to drive that day, provided an alibi for him. One thing that I found interesting was that after Maurice was killed, the director of the St. Joseph School, Milton Lichtman, said that he had issued a warning to students and parents the previous October about not accepting rides or gifts from strangers. This was after he received some complaints that some children had been accosted by men on their way to school. It seems like maybe that's the place where the investigation should have started. After Maurice's abduction and murder, St. Joseph's school parents started driving their kids to and from school rather than having them walk. Within a few weeks of the murder, one woman wrote into the Wilkes-Barre Times leader, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced Wilkes-Barre, I had to look it up, as a worried mother asking whether the schools could provide busing and institute a policy of calling home to let the moms know their kids had made it to school safely every day. In a testament to how old this case truly is, contemporary news articles gave the full names of people interviewed by police as possible suspects in Maurice's murder. For example, Palmerton police arrested a guy named Albert Dennis of West Wyoming, Pennsylvania, on Wednesday, the day Maurice was killed. They had picked him up because that day he stopped a 15-year-old girl who was walking home from school in Palmerton and asked her if she could give him directions to the Shady Rest Lodge. This was a nudist colony located about three miles away. Now, you might be thinking, as I was, why did they arrest this guy for asking about a nudist colony? He was charged with obscenity and corrupting the morals of a minor for asking a question. But it seems that this was this creep's M.O. He had stopped four young girls before this and asked each one where the nudist colony was. And he must have been very lurid and suggestive when he did so, because the 15-year-old girl was distressed enough to tell her father the man's license plate number. Palmerton police had been on the lookout for him for over a year and he made the mistake of bothering the 15-year-old in Palmerton on the same day that Maurice was killed. So state police came to talk to him, questioned him about his whereabouts that day, and sent his clothing to the state police lab for analysis. They learned he had not shown up for work that day, a very bad sign. But it turned out that old Albert had an alibi, so after three hours of questioning by state police and his alibi being confirmed, he was crossed off the list. They did prosecute him for the charges against the 15-year-old, but there was nothing tying him to Maurice. Another man named in the media was Samuel Levine. The 44-year-old Hazelton native was picked up as a vagrant after he spent the night at Scranton Police Headquarters claiming he was indigent. He said he was a car washer or waxer by profession, and he lived in a shack behind a taxi stand. It seems he was held in question just because he was deemed somewhat unsavory, for no specific reason other than his questionable job and living situation, his indigence, and his having been in mental institutions three times. He claimed to have been in Glen Cove, New York, on the day of the murder, which is where he worked. He was let go after his story checked out. Next, police questioned Thomas D. Haynes of Toledo, Ohio. He was picked up in Hazleton after a call about a peeping Tom. Haynes was a truck driver who told the cops that he was, quote, just walking around although it was 12.30 a.m. in a residential neighborhood. He denied even being in the state on the day that Maurice was killed, and apparently his alibi checked out. He was charged as a prowler and fined and let go. 
Next up was Ted Lawback of State College, age 23, who was arrested in the hometown area for loitering and prowling. Nothing there either. Police also hauled in Bruce Hildebrand, a 29-year-old dishwasher who had walked in and confessed to killing Maurice two weeks after her murder. He seemed to know specific information about her clothing and where she went to school. This info was all in the papers, though, so police were not 100% convinced by Hildebrand's alleged inside knowledge. Police took down his confession and let him go while they investigated it. They decided on a little trickery and surveilled Hildebrand, who had a tendency to get tanked at bars after work. One night, they picked him up on a drunk and disorderly charge and brought him in. While in jail, they asked him to respond to an oral survey about jail conditions, but instead they had a hypnotist put him under. The hypnosis session brought out the truth. Hildebrand was depressed and suicidal and wanted to be put on death row because he didn't have the courage to take his own life. He didn't kill Maurice. His confession was bogus, and his lying was verified by a lie detector test. He was sent packing. Matthew Douglas was arrested on charges of molesting two young Hazleton boys, and he lived on Alter Street, where Maurice's house was. He, too, was questioned. So was 45-year-old Anthony Preet, who was arrested in early April for leaving a series of, quote, lewd and lascivious notes around Hazleton. There sure were a lot of weirdos and pervs populating this area. Mark Barron, the PA state trooper who cracked this case, told People magazine, quote, It seemed like everybody could have committed this crime. There were a lot of messed up people back in the early 60s. As you can hear, the investigators talked to literally anyone who came across their paths, but none of these guys were viable suspects. They might have been creeps, leaving dirty notes and even peeping in windows, but they didn't kill Maurice. They were all under a cloud of suspicion because the community was on edge and both kids and parents were looking over their shoulders. Police had their hands full with all these miscreants, but the big fish continued to elude them. Then, police picked up and repeatedly questioned a known area sex offender who was called a pedophile in one contemporary newspaper article. This only came out because 51-year-old Harold Rudolph Nicholas of Nescopec took his own life on May 12th. Nicholas was known to Hazleton law enforcement for a criminal past involving sex crimes against children, which reportedly involved exposing himself. And apparently he also resembled a sketch of the man seen near the stripping pit by a witness. I'll get into those sketches in a minute. Furthermore, when Maurice was killed, Nicholas was staying at the home of his common-law wife, whose home was at 561 Alter Street, located along the route Maurice would have walked that day. In his first interview after police brought him into the station, Nicholas told them he hadn't been outside on the day Maurice was taken, but later in the interview he mentioned how cold it was that day. The inconsistency seemed glaring to police, and they arranged for a polygraph exam for the man who was now deemed a strong suspect. But there was only one polygrapher in the region at the time, and he wasn't available, so the exam was scheduled for a later date. On the day he died, Nicholas was supposed to come into the state police barracks for a lie detector test, but he never showed. He and his car, motor running, were found six miles west of Hazleton on the property of a coal company in an area used as a strip mine. He had died of carbon monoxide poisoning after running a hose from his car exhaust pipe into the interior of the vehicle. A headline in the Philadelphia Inquirer blared, Suspect in murder of girl, nine, found dead near car in Hazleton. Lab tests found 70% carbon monoxide saturation in his blood, so it clearly did the trick. No doubt this guy's suicide left investigators eternally wondering whether he was their man. One trooper who had worked the case later said of Nicholas, quote, I felt we had a pretty good suspect there. 
Of course, the suspect's death left an open-ended question as to whether he had killed Maurice. If he hadn't, why would he be so alarmed about being polygraphed that he took his own life? Police had the same thoughts. And there was quite a bit of circumstantial evidence that pointed to him. Nicholas remained on the list of prime suspects, but in the days before DNA, there was simply no way to confirm that he was their man, or to eliminate him once and for all since he was dead. Eventually, though, his DNA was compared to the suspects, and he was ruled out as it was not a match. Another man looked like a good suspect after he was found, how police came across him is unclear, with a scrapbook of newspaper article cutouts about various murders, one of which was Maurice's. This guy had an alibi and was crossed off the list. Then, on May 19th, police decided it was time to step things up. They started releasing a series of sketches of men who, they said, were wanted for questioning. The drawings were all sketched by Sergeant Lawrence O'Donnell of the Hazleton State Police Troop and had been done in the very early days of the investigation, but kept internal until now. The first sketch released shows a clean-shaven white man with a long, thin face and prominent cheekbones. He has male pattern baldness, and his age was estimated at 45 to 55. This sketch was based on information from a witness who saw this man in the sketch driving a pale green car south on Vine Street on the morning Maurice was abducted. He then turned left onto 4th Street and was seen parked on the south side of West 4th Street between Sherman Court and Church Street. This was right around the last place where Maurice was seen. The man in the sketch was seen at around the time she would have passed by on her way to school. In my opinion, this sketch does somewhat resemble the man who killed Maurice, although the age was way off. A second sketch of a different man wanted for questioning made by the same police sketch artist shows a white male wearing glasses and a baseball cap, with a medium to heavy build and a round face and bulbous nose. The sketch reflects that his complexion was light and his face was, quote, round and fleshy. He possibly was 55 years old with graying dark hair. He was seen near the location of the dump site driving an older model dirty green vehicle. He was apparently seen by a witness driving toward Hazleton on the dirt road leading from the dump site to the airport road between 8.45 and 9 a.m. on the morning Maurice was killed. Two more sketches were also released. One was of a man who tried to assault a woman inside her home near the Chivarella residence. The final sketch was intriguing because it was of a man who had been seen parking his black Chevy sedan every day for the two weeks leading up to the murders along the route Maurice was believed to have walked. Specifically, he parked on West 4th Street between Sherman Court and Church Streets. This man was also white, mid-50s, described as, quote, a working man type. Bolos went out for the sedan seen in the area. The release of all these sketches generated numerous tips to police, all of which were followed up on. Investigators were still working around the clock even three months after the murder. Then in July, there was another attempted abduction. A nine-year-old girl, the same age as Maurice, was walking down the street in Freeland in the middle of the afternoon when a short, heavyset man of approximately 50 years of age pulled up beside her and lunged at her, trying to pull her into his car. He didn't succeed, and she ran off. In the first week of April, a $3,000 reward was announced for information leading to the arrest and conviction of a suspect in the case. Local businesses and individuals chipped in to fund the reward, which is the equivalent of about $27,000 of today's money. By May 20th, the reward was up to $3,500. It was established that if the reward had not been paid out in five years' time, it would be given to the Chivarella family. Then, in August 1964, police came across another potential suspect. 
A man named Robert Engler, age 46, walked into the police station in Uniontown and told officers that he was responsible for a recent murder in Chicago. This was the slaying of 15-year-old Martha Lou Turner, murdered in Chicago in May 1964. Engler was questioned about Maurice for obvious reasons, one of which was that he looked exactly like one of the four sketches that had been done. But it became apparent quickly that he had nothing to do with her death, as he was at work in a nursing home in Illinois at the time. Police made arrangements for him to be extradited to Illinois, whereupon Engler said, Great, I retract my confession. I was just looking for a way to get a free ride back to my home state. So he was delivered back to Chicago and arrested for the murder of Martha, who had been stabbed 11 times and dumped partially nude. Engler was wanted for questioning in a number of other child murders in the Chicago area. He had joined a traveling carnival and skipped town. As the first anniversary of Maurice's death approached, Hazleton was selected as the location for the launch of a statewide child safety initiative being sponsored by the FBI. The campaign featured a coloring poster warning children about stranger danger and included a drawing of a little girl walking down the sidewalk with a creepy man in a trench coat hiding behind a tree, a bag of candy behind his back. The poster bore the signature of J. Edgar Hoover. It's creepy to think about all these little kids Crayola-ing the posters of the ominous-looking man staring at the smiling youngster. On the actual anniversary of Maurice's murder, the investigation, which was voted by the Standard Speaker editors as the top news story of 1964, was reported to have involved 9,000 contacts requiring 22,000 man-hours, 116,000 miles of travel, and 3,123 pages of police reports. Nearly every one of the 50 states had been contacted as investigators reached out to discuss similar cases or criminal records. But a year in, every investigative avenue that detectives could think of had led to one big dead end. There was nothing new. The second year of the investigation was more of the same. Anyone picked up for any kind of crime against a child or sexual assault was questioned. One mental patient was considered a very interesting potential suspect for a brief time after he produced a religious medal which he claimed he had taken from Maurice's dead body. Indeed, Maurice had owned such a medal, but she hadn't been wearing it on the day she was killed. The chain had broken, so she left it at home, and Mary still had it. In June 1965, Lieutenant Switaj was promoted to captain and taken off the Chivarella case. It was the first of many lead investigator handoffs of the case over its 58-year history. In June 1985, 21 years after Maurice was killed, there was an arrest on an unrelated series of cases. 59-year-old Chester Beaver Condrad, a down-and-out looking dude with flyaway white hair and a hooked nose, was arrested at a Wilkes-Barre psych facility to which he had admitted himself. He was charged with indecent assault, corruption of minors, and deviant sexual intercourse for his molestation of three juvenile brothers he had paid for sexual favors and photographs. Here's a quote from the Citizen's Voice newspaper. Search warrant affidavits filed in the case note that during two separate interviews on June 15th and 18th, Conrad admitted assaulting a young female about 20 years previously in the area about 20 miles from his home in Buttonwood. The affidavits went on to note that on March 18, 1964, about 20 years earlier, Maurice Ann Chivarella had been murdered and her body was found in Hazel Township, 20 miles from Conrad's home. The affidavits were seeking the right to conduct further searches of Conrad's property relating to the Chivarella case. Finally, they had a prime suspect, acknowledged by the police as such. 
and searches of Conrad's home hit pay dirt, sort of. Two truckloads of materials were removed from the house, including articles about sexual exploitation and crimes against kids, loads of porn, chests of sex toys and sexually explicit materials, pornographic photos, and a female rubber doll. When he was being arraigned on the molestation charges, Conrad told the court, quote, I didn't want to hurt those kids. I need help, hospital help. Conrad was also charged with photographing a naked nine-year-old girl and disseminating sexually explicit material to other kids. This spate of sex crimes was not his first. He had served time in the 70s for child molestation and had also done a stint at a mental hospital. And more charges were soon piled on for additional assaults he perpetrated on a five-year-old boy, an 11-year-old boy, and an eight-year-old girl. He did not discriminate. He was willing to victimize any child who crossed his path. Conrad's arrest and the possible link to Maurice's case caught the attention of the Chivarella family. Maurice's parents were too ill to attend, but her aunt, Carol Chivarella, sat in on some of Conrad's court hearings. She told the Times leader, quote, They're not sure if it's him yet. If it's him, he should be tortured. The family is so torn up by this. Maurice's mother and father are a wreck. Conrad ended up pleading guilty to the majority of the charges against him and was sent to a psychiatric facility for treatment. He had been diagnosed as a dangerous pedophile by several evaluating physicians. But he was eliminated as a suspect in the murder of Maurice Chivarella. Police found that he did not know any actual details of the crime. Joseph Callinger, a multiple murderer from Philadelphia known as the Cobbler, was also looked at at one point. Callinger was an extremely violent and psychotic criminal who murdered three people in the 70s, a woman in a home invasion, a nine-year-old Philadelphia boy, and his own 14-year-old son who had accused him of abuse. I'm not even going to go into how deranged Callinger was. According to the investigators in Maurice's case, he confessed to killing her, but he was so unstable that he sometimes was heard babbling to himself. In his confession, several of the details he related showed that he did not kill Maurice. He was written off as not a viable suspect. In 1993, it was revealed that the VDOC Society was taking a look at a case that was very similar to Maurice's, and by extension would consider whether Maurice's homicide could be related. This was the 1963 murder of Carol Ann Doherty. For those of you who don't know what the VDOC Society is, this is taken directly from the organization's website. The Society was founded in 1990 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to further the resolution of long unsolved homicides. It is made up of volunteer forensic experts and investigators who serve as confidential consultants to assist law enforcement in solving difficult cold cases. Its members include profilers, criminologists, forensic scientists, medical examiners, active and retired law enforcement agents, prosecutors, polygraph examiners, and others skilled in solving these cases. At the time of the Chivarella case review, the society comprised 82 members. Since VDOC was somewhat local to the Chivarella and Doherty cases, they were a go-to resource for the investigators on these now decades-old cold cases that bore startling similarities. Let's take a look at Carol Ann's case and why it was believed to be possibly linked to Maurice's. One avenue of investigation that state police investigators felt deserved quite a bit of focus back in 1964 was the fact that the night before Maurice was slain, a visiting basketball team from Bristol High had played the PIAA Class B Eastern Final Game in the St. Joseph's School Gym. Reportedly, as many as 1,500 people from Bristol had been bused 100 miles to Hazleton for the game. 
It was thought that the foreign crowd attending the game might have included an unsavory character who had stayed in town overnight to prey on a youngster, someone who had perhaps struck before. This was suspected because a similar murder had actually occurred in Bristol. In October 1962, nine-year-old Carol Ann Doherty of Bristol was found by her father murdered in the choir loft of St. Mark's Church, where she had stopped to say a prayer on her way to the library. Waylaid in a pew, she had been thrown to the floor and dragged by the feet up the stairs to the loft where she was strangled. She had also been raped, and her underwear was down around her ankles when she was found. She had been gagged with her own sock. Her neck was encircled by a red welt with finger marks that showed that her killer had throttled her while he raped her before strangling her with a belt used as a ligature. Carol Ann's little blue bike remained outside the church, perched on its kickstand with the library book, A Mystery by Judy Bolton, in the basket, but she would never ride or read again. Her slaying became known as the Choir Loft Murder as her corpse was found under the stained glass windows of the loft where the choir would serenade the congregation. What's really creepy is that a parishioner had tried to come inside to say a prayer but found the church doors locked. Later, when Carol Ann's mother came to the church to look for her, the doors were open. Whoever had killed the little girl had watched her enter the church and sneaked inside and locked the doors behind him. Police had gathered some cigarette butts and 30 different samples of pubic hair found on the floor near the body, as well as two brown pubic hairs that were found in the clenched fist of the little victim. That's a lot of pubic hairs. Back in 1962, testing on the hairs was rudimentary, but now in the 90s, it was hoped that testing of the hairs might reveal some DNA. Remember, a pubic hair had been found on Maurice's leg. It turns out that in 1966, the FBI crime lab had conducted a comparison of the different pubic hairs from the two cases, but the test results were inconclusive. Bristol police had come to Hazleton when Maurice was murdered to compare notes with authorities there, and Hazleton investigators had questioned every person from Bristol who they learned had attended the basketball game in town. But no suspects emerged, and no link was ever established between the two cases, despite their marked similarities, and both cases remained unsolved. Police in Bristol and Hazleton agreed that if any suspect was ever arrested for either case, he would be questioned with regard to the other. At the conclusion of the VDOC Society review, which included a review of Maurice's case file and some investigative work by the group, the head of the organization, William Fleischer, told the Luzerne and Bucks County authorities that they believed Maurice's and Carol Ann's cases were linked. Fleischer noted the striking similarities and said, quote, I don't believe in coincidence. The Doherty case was then assigned to an investigative grand jury for consideration. The VDOC Society continued to look into Maurice's case, but even the renowned prestigious group could not make significant headway. The State Police Criminal Investigation Assessment Unit was also at work at this time comparing the details and evidence in the two cases. The goal was to come up with a profile of the killer. They were in possession of eight binders of materials from the Chivarella case file alone. One of the original state troopers who investigated the case told the Citizen's Voice in 1993 that Maurice's investigation was the largest he had seen over the course of his career. Detective Jack Levka told the paper that police had questioned more than 10,000 people. Maurice's mother Mary talked to the paper at that time as well, saying that she and her husband were struggling with the recognition that they might not ever know who killed their daughter. 1994 marked the 30th anniversary of Maurice's murder. If there was any progress on the case, police remained mum about it. 
Some tips were called in after the articles about the VDOC Society appeared in the papers. The head of the society, William Fleischer, commented that progress was being made as a direct result of the articles about the case appearing in the standard speaker. But this seemed overly optimistic. The next batch of articles about the case ran in the local papers in observance of the 40th anniversary, and then the 45th, and then the 50th. Fifty years, half a century, since Marisa's murderer left her battered, barefoot little body in a snow-covered garbage pit and walked away. But police were inching closer to finding her killer thanks to developments in forensic technology. Around 2002, the state police investigators reviewed the entire Shiverella file with an eye toward forensic evidence. Everything had been sent to the crime lab for DNA analysis, but nothing had panned out. If they were looking for Maurice's killer in CODIS, they weren't going to find him there either. In 2006, Carmen Shiverella, Maurice's father, died at age 87. Mary passed away at age 90 in 2014. I'm sure I don't need to point out how tragic it was that these two grieving parents never knew who killed their beloved daughter. The remaining Chivarella children, now adults, said that late in life their mother had said she found a way to forgive her daughter's killer. Now, with both parents gone and no resolution, the only comfort the family had was their faith that Carmen, Mary, and Maurice were together in heaven. Maurice's parents were buried with her in the cemetery where she had lain for over 40 years. Mary had survived to see the 50th anniversary of her daughter's slaying, but died a month later with answers remaining elusive. In 2007, behind the scenes, there was groundbreaking progress in Maurice's case. All the items collected from the crime scene, Maurice's clothes, shoes, purse and book bag, and her bindings and gag, had all been stored properly at the state police barracks for all those years. Now, 10 evidentiary specimens believed to contain the suspect's DNA were sent to the state police crime lab for analysis to see if any of the items would yield a DNA profile of the killer. And sure enough, a semen stain was detected on Maurice's jacket. A genetic profile of the suspect was extracted from this sample and uploaded to CODIS on August 30, 2007, and on a weekly basis thereafter. But there were no hits. The DNA profile was tested against all the original suspects in the case as well, but there were no matches. The Pennsylvania State Police undertook a re-examination of Maurice's case starting in 2018. They had typically conducted an annual review of all cold cases, including Maurice's, but this time they considered what could be done with the DNA profile to focus their hunt for Maurice's killer. And in March 2019, in honor of the 55th anniversary of Maurice's death, when she would have been 64 years old, a press conference was held releasing some new information. Trooper Anthony Petrosky, Troop N's public information officer, announced that in fall of 2018, the state police had contracted with Parabon Nanolabs to prepare a phenotype regarding the suspect. Funding for the $5,000 expense came from the Shiverella family and contributions from some law enforcement agencies in the area, including the VDOC Society and the Luzerne County DA's office. Parabon had prepared a SNP profile of the suspect from DNA on a piece of Maurice's clothing and ran it through the phenotyping process. Three snapshot images of the suspect were produced at ages 25, 40, and 60. They show a fair-skinned white man with some freckles, green or hazel eyes, and dark hair from mostly admixed Southern European and Middle Eastern roots, likely Italian and possibly Greek. The green or hazel eye color was posited with 90% certainty, but there was still a 10% chance that the suspect's eyes were blue. The release of the images generated numerous tips and leads, but nothing panned out. 
Then a press conference was held on February 10, 2022, nearly six decades after Marisa's murder. Trooper Anthony Petrosky, the public information officer, kicked off the event, which was attended by many of the investigators from over the years, as well as members of the Chivarella family. Lieutenant Devin M. Brutoski, Troop N's criminal investigations section commander, told the assembled crowd and media that, quote, the Pennsylvania State Police was founded in 1905, so over half of our existence we've investigated this case. He went on to say that when he assumed leadership of the CIS in 2018, he promised the family that he would continue to work to solve Maurice's case, the oldest actively investigated case on the books. And he held true to this promise. He announced that Maurice's killer had been identified through forensic genealogy. Here's what happened. Eric Schubert is a Pennsylvania-based genealogist who is a college student by day. He got into genealogy when he was homesick as a preteen and became interested in his own family tree. Eventually, he started his own business, ES Genealogy, as an independent genealogist. Schubert became aware of the Chivarella case after the snapshot images of the suspect were released. Observing that the case remained open, he contacted the Luzerne County DA's office and offered to help on the case free of charge. Investigators were not in a position to say no. In February of 2019, Parabon had submitted the suspect's DNA profile to GEDmatch in search of relatives of the killer, and they got a match barely. The highest match, a woman named Camille, was just a minuscule 53.5 centimorgans. This is along the lines of a third cousin or a second cousin three times removed, a very distant relation. It was a disheartening result, but was better than nothing. Camille's family tree revealed that her mother was originally from Pennsylvania, and two of her grandmother's siblings were from Hazleton. But that wasn't enough information to pin down the killer. In March of 2020, the DA and troop and investigators agreed to work with Eric Schubert, who was only 18 years old at the time. He ordered apple juice at his initial meeting with the investigators, but he satisfied them that he knew what he was doing as he had solved another cold case in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Schubert is not permitted to discuss the details of that case publicly, so I don't know which one it was. The state police arranged for the suspect's genetic profile to be entered into family tree DNA. In that database, the closest match to the killer shared 95 centimorgans. This was a woman named Molly. And her great-grandfather, John Palmino, was from Carbon County, Pennsylvania. Schubert believed that this was the family line that would yield the killer. Schubert commenced the process that we're all familiar with, assembling 50-plus family trees using public records of births, deaths, and marriages, and census, military, and local tax records to flesh out the Palmino tree that it was believed included the killer somewhere on its many, many branches. He said, quote, I had all these notes and names just trying to find connections that put people in the right genetic positions to be in Hazleton or to be a person who would commit such a crime. Once he was able to come up with some names, investigators started getting on planes, knocking on doors, telling people the purpose of their visit, and asking for DNA samples. The cooperation from total strangers was overwhelming. Maurice's story really moved people, and they wanted to help. Investigators tracked down scores of people, and as Corporal Mark Barron said at the press conference, no one slammed a door in our face. As I mentioned, Schubert noted the family name Palmino way back in Molly's family tree. The same name was also in Camille's family tree. And the name Palmino meant something to the investigators. There was another unsolved murder that Hazleton Troop N had investigated. This was the May 20, 1972 shooting of Renata Palmino. 
Renata was shot to death by an apparent intruder who smashed her kitchen window and entered the home around 4.30 a.m. Renata, awakened by the noise, tried to run out the front door, but was killed by shots to the back on her own front lawn. Her husband, Eugene Palmino, who was a descendant of John Palmino and was deceased, was a registered sex offender and his DNA was in CODIS. So investigators could access his DNA profile and compare it to that of the killer of Maurice Chivarella's. It was not a match. Renata's case, by the way, remains unsolved. So back to the family tree. Investigators discovered that a living descendant of John Palmino, his grandson, was a retired New Jersey state police captain. This directly from a statement issued by the state police. We utilized DNA related to the 1972 investigation and it confirmed we were on the right ancestral track. Investigators also linked the Palmino name to a retired New Jersey State Police Captain, John Palmino, and decided to contact him for assistance. He provided us a relative's name, who he considered to be the family historian, and most likely to have an in-depth family tree. We received a large family tree and began a review. Through the remainder of 2020 and through the end of 2021, we interviewed numerous relatives of the Palminos and acquired many voluntary DNA samples. We were fortunate enough to have most of the related family cooperate and provide us their DNA samples. Some of the surnames that appeared in the family tree were Katona, Martirano, and Roman. The process was incredibly long, convoluted, and painstaking. It took a full year for Eric Schubert to get the name of a relative named Jay Palmino, who shared 179 centimorgans with the killer, four times the amount they had started with when they found Camille, who was Jay Palmino's distant cousin they were getting closer. I'll never forget when Corporal Barron was telling me that we had just gotten that match because in that moment I knew we were going to find the assailant, Schubert said at the press conference. He said of the painstaking and often demoralizing process, it was, quote, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. While this whole process was going on in August 2020, they realized that they had never gone the route of creating a Y-DNA profile of their killer. As listeners know, Y-DNA chromosome profile is only found in males and is typically carried as an exact match through paternal lineage because it is handed down intact from generation to generation. It can mutate, but usually does so in a detectable way. So establishing the Y-DNA profile can sometimes help narrow things down by unearthing the surnames that can be related to the killer along his paternal line. And taking this step helped significantly. It ruled out two men in the family tree with the last names Roman and Katona. But one of the names associated with the Y-DNA profile was the surname Palmino. And many of the family members related to this branch were cooperative and willingly gave DNA samples. Some of them even helped in entering their DNA profiles from commercial databases, such as 23andMe, over to Family Tree DNA, so investigators could flesh out the kinship relationships. Investigators now knew the matriarchal and patriarchal lines of the killer's family. In August 2021, the samples from the Palmino family relatives provided a match of 1,149 centimorgans, a half-uncle or cousin of the killer. This was a man with the last name Katona. Now, there were only four names on the list of possible killers. There were two brothers with the name for Manchin, and two brothers with the name Forte. Only one of them, whom I won't name, but it was one of the Fermanchin men, was still alive. His mother's maiden name was Katona. When police visited him, this man readily agreed to give a DNA sample. 
It showed not only that he was not the killer, but that based on his Y-DNA profile, his brother wasn't the killer either. The Formansons were excluded. That left only the Fortes, Frank and James. Investigators contacted a living male relative of Frank and James, their half-nephew, and obtained a voluntary DNA sample from him, as well as permission to upload to Family Tree DNA. The testing showed that his DNA shared 23 of 24 alleles on the Y chromosome as the killer. And the Family Tree DNA comparison showed that this Forte relative shared 1,178 centimorgans with the killer, the equivalent to a half-nephew. They were getting even closer. They dug into Frank and James, in one case, literally. Frank John Forte's grandfather's last name was Katona. Frank had died by suicide in 2020. Investigators visited his widow, who provided them with two combs and a brush containing his hair, an electric razor, and a case with a clipper attachment that also contained hair. She gave permission for the investigators to test these items. I can't help but wonder if she was wondering if perhaps her husband's secret had been a motive for his suicide. But testing on the hair has excluded Frank as the killer of Maurice Chevarella. It did, however, show that he shared 20 alleles with the killer. That left only James Paul Forte, who was also dead. But his location and criminal record certainly fit the bill. Within days of getting down to just Forte's name, police had a search warrant for his DNA. He was buried right there in Butler Township's Calvary Cemetery, Lot 7, Row R, Section G, Grave Number 1. The warrant authorized the collection of DNA from a femur, two ribs, and four teeth. The exhumation was completed on January 6th of this year, and a DNA sample taken from Forte's remains. Results came in on February 3rd. The DNA profile from James Paul Forte matched the DNA profile from the semen stain on Maurice's jacket. Okay, back to the press conference announcing the resolution of Maurice's case. A photo of James Paul Forte was mounted on an easel in the conference room. Corporal Mark Barron, who brought the case to fruition, was emotional when he approached the lectern. Maurice's brothers and sisters were all assembled behind him, as were many of the investigators over the years. Barron got choked up and momentarily was unable to speak. Then he talked about how, on March 18, 1964, Hazelton changed. He said, quote, This was a violent and heinous crime that was committed against a small child. We're always told not to get attached to a case, but you can't help it. It's a vivid memory for everybody who lived through this, and it's a vivid memory for everybody who grew up in this area. You were told by a grandparent, a parent, an aunt, an uncle, this is Maurice's story. What happened to her ushered in a change in this community. Barron said he was assigned the case in 2017. I was told this case was solvable. I was told the case needed to be worked, that you needed somebody to find the time necessary and solely dedicate that time to the Chivarella case. Well, Barron said he spent countless hours on and off duty working the case. Even after he left the criminal investigations unit when he got promoted, he asked to stay on as lead investigator. But despite all his hard work in more than 5,000 pages of state police files on the Chivarella case, the killer's name never appeared. I've read the report. He's not there, Barron said. He then addressed the results of the exhumation of James Paul Forte. Quote, the possibility of another person having that DNA profile is one in 487 septillion, he said. Eric Schubert chimed in, that's 487 followed by 24 zeros. Since it's estimated that there have only been 117 billion people who have ever inhabited Earth, 
To get someone besides Forte, who was another match to the killer, you would need over four million planet Earths. Barron concluded by saying, Even though we could not bring charges against Mr. Forte, we hope it brings some closure to the Chivarella family. Speaking of the family, Ronald Chivarella and the other family members came up to speak. Ronald was the oldest of the Chivarella children. He expressed appreciation and admiration for the PSP, which, he said, continuously updated the family and were present over 58 years. They always provided hope, even as Mary and Carmen passed on. Ronald said Mary always prayed for answers at the weekly Sabbath meal. She would always end it with a prayer asking Jesus, the Blessed Mother, please help the Pennsylvania State Police find the man that hurt my daughter, he said. He also reflected how his mother told each of Maurice's surviving siblings that she had forgiven whoever had killed their sister. Carmen Marie, Maurice's older sister, also spoke. She said, quote, We have so many precious memories of Maurice. At the same time, our family will always feel the emptiness and sorrow of her absence. We will continue to ask ourselves what would have been, what could have been. She said their parents never sought revenge, but justice. Thanks to the Pennsylvania State Police, justice has been served today, she said. Carmen Marie read aloud two Bible verses. One was the one I referred to earlier in the episode, which states that vengeance is in the hands of God. But she also read a second, which reads, quote, But anyone who is an obstacle to bring down one of these little ones would be better thrown into the sea with a great millstone around his neck. At the conclusion of the press conference, Lieutenant Devin Brutowski reiterated that James Paul Forte died in 1980 and cannot be tried. He stated, However, he is the person who committed this crime, and we are not under the impression that this is the only crime he committed. Okay, let's talk about James Paul Forte. Not much is known about Forte. He was born on July 21, 1941, in Hazleton to Gennaro Forte and Pauline Catona Forte. He had a sister and two brothers. One of his brothers, Frank, was the man who took his own life by gunshot in 2020 and whose DNA ruled him out. I'm not certain how the other brother was ruled out. Forte, a local nobody as described by the Bucks County Courier Times, lived in Hazleton all of his life. He graduated from Hazleton High School in 1959, where his yearbook describes him as tall, blue-eyed and handsome, loves to sleep, sports are his favorite, especially baseball, future undecided. His education was listed as vocational. Per the Times leader, Forte was not shown or listed anywhere else in the 1959 yearbook among school clubs, athletics, or dances. His yearbook photo was the one displayed at the press conference. Since Forte was only 22 years old when he abducted, raped, and killed Maurice, it's believed to be a close approximation to what he looked like at the time of her murder. Forte had enlisted in the Army after high school on October 16, 1959, and was discharged in September 1962. It's unclear whether his discharge was an honorable one. After that, he worked as a bartender, manager, and bar supply salesman at a bar and event space called Janetti's at the Best Western Motor Lodge on Route 309 in Hazel Township. He died there on May 16, 1980, from natural causes believed to be a heart attack. The headline on the brief article in the Standard Speaker was, Bartender Collapses at Work, Dies. He was dead upon arrival at the hospital. He was only 38 years old. According to his obituary in the local paper, he was a member of Our Lady of Grace Church and local 134 AFL-CIO Hotel and Restaurant Workers Union. There are no records of him ever being married, and he had no children. 
Police interviewed Forte's surviving relatives and friends, but no one believed it was possible that he was a child killer. They didn't even consider him to be a violent person, which is a little hard to believe considering what he did 10 years after he killed Maurice. Interestingly, Forte had blue eyes. Parabon had put the chances of his having green or hazel eyes at 90%, but noted the 10% chance that his eyes were blue. What about Forte's record? Well, he had a history of violent sexual assault. 32-year-old Forte was arrested for a violent assault in April 1974. Here's what happened. On April 3, 1974, Forte and a 23-year-old woman named Molly went to the Capri Lounge on Alter and 2nd Streets to visit a friend. They left the lounge at 4 a.m., and Forte was supposed to take Molly home. Instead, he pulled his Chevy truck over in a dirt road stripping area on Stockton Mountain in Hazel Township, tied Molly up, and sexually assaulted her. The injuries Molly suffered included trauma to the left side of her face. Presumably, Forte was right-handed. She got extremely lucky, though. When a truck stopped behind Forte's vehicle, he was forced to drive off, eventually letting Molly out at West Broad and Vine Streets. She walked home and called friends and police before going to the Hazleton State General Hospital ER, where she reported the incident. She later said that the attack was so violent she felt she would have been killed had someone not happened to come along and stop it. According to the Times leader, after Molly reported the crime, a search warrant was served on Forte's vehicle where they retrieved hair samples from the front seat and mud indicating the car had been driven in the area where the assault took place, court records say. Forte was arrested and charged with involuntary deviate sexual intercourse, indecent assault, and aggravated assault. He got out on $5,000 bail. Eventually, prosecutors withdrew the sexual assault charges and Forte pled guilty to aggravated assault on September 18, 1974. On October 2nd, Judge Bernard C. Brominski sentenced Forte to one year special probation to be supervised by Pennsylvania Probation and Parole Office. He was also ordered to pay Molly's hospital bill. Okay, let's just take note that this was a slap on the wrist. At the 2022 press conference, Pennsylvania State Police stated that they interviewed the victim of the 1974 attack, Molly, and called her attack a very violent encounter. It's not really clear how Forte got off with such a light punishment, as the PSP has stated that the police report for her attack is missing. But given the reported injuries to her person, his intent to sexually assault her, and the level of violence he demonstrated, it's shocking that he didn't get a stiffer sentence. And note the similarities to Maurice's case. Molly was taken from a location very near where Maurice was abducted and driven to an isolated strip mining area where she was tied up and attacked. The injuries she sustained were similar. The PSP's own probable cause affidavit acknowledges a specific M.O., citing the similarities between Molly's case and Maurice's case. It does make one wonder why Forte was not looked at for Maurice's murder in the wake of his 1974 arrest for the attack on Molly. This was not Forte's last arrest, but it was the only one that involved a similar M.O. to that in Maurice's case. In the September 6, 1978, Standard Speaker, it was reported that Forte was arrested for reckless endangerment and harassment after Hazleton police were called to the area of Manhattan Court and 11th Streets for a report of a man running with a gun. Police charged Forte and another man and a woman upon learning that threatening phone calls were placed to a family in the neighborhood. Unfortunately, investigators cannot determine what the disposition in that case is, and police have said they have no more details. This incident does not appear on Forte's record. 
Okay, so what about Maurice? How did Forte get his hands on her? None of the Chivarellas knew Forte's name or recognized him. Investigators believe that his attack on Maurice was random. At the time, Forte was living at 118 West 14th Street, about six blocks from Maurice's home. Presumably, he saw her walking alone that day and took the opportunity to seize her and pull her into his vehicle. In retrospect, it seems like an incredibly brazen crime on a busy street during rush hour on a weekday. Police seem to believe that Forte likely has more such crimes under his belt, and one woman thinks she was targeted. Gina Donahue Connors grew up on Alter Street in Hazleton. She can't recall exactly what year this incident took place, but she was 9 or 10 years old. At 3rd and Alter Streets, about a block from the Chivarella's store and home, a man stopped and offered her and her female friend a ride. He was driving a white car, and he said, Come on, I'll give you a ride. He persisted. The girls ran into an A&P and got a clerk. Gina remembered the man's face because she was freaked out. Now, after seeing Forte's photo in the press conference, she believes it was him who tried to lure the girls into his vehicle that day. We'll never know, but it certainly seems possible given the location and his predilection for young girls. What about Carol Ann Doherty, the little girl killed at the church in Bristol? Did James Paul Forte kill her 17 months before he killed Maurice? Mark Barron would say only that he knows of no link between the Chivarella and Doherty cases. He acknowledged that Forte was discharged from the Army on October 15, 1962, and Carol was killed in Bristol a week later. But Barron said, quote, I honestly don't know of him, Forte, having any connections down there in Bucks County. Is it possible? I guess anything's possible. But do I have anything definitively to say yes, he was there or no, he wasn't? As far as I know, he was a lifetime resident of Hazleton. My question, of course, was whether authorities in Pennsylvania had compared the DNA left behind by Carol Ann Doherty's killer with the DNA from the semen stain on Maurice's jacket. That comparison would prove definitively whether the killer was one and the same. I posed this question to the PSP's Troop N Public Information Officer, Trooper Anthony Petrosky. Here is the email I received. Unfortunately, all of the items that were submitted for DNA testing associated with the Doherty homicide had an insufficient amount of DNA for autosomal DNA profiling. Thus, no autosomal DNA profile was obtained, which means the DNA obtained from the Chivarella homicide cannot be compared to the Doherty case because we do not have a profile to compare it to. So, the sample of offender DNA in Carol Ann's case is just too minute to yield genetic information. What an absolute shame for the Doherty family. And we can't know whether her killer was James Forte or someone else. Perhaps with continued advancements in forensic technology, one day we will have answers. But as of now, Carol Ann's case remains open and her killer unidentified. After 58 years, Maurice Chivarella's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. Mark Barron, the lead investigator, said it is believed to be the fourth oldest cold case in the United States to be solved using this new tool and the oldest in Pennsylvania. And if you are one of the bad guys, they are coming for you. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. 
To contact the show, please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, and at dnaidpodcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime. Evil can lurk in any shadow, and it sometimes walks in light, stalking and peering around corners. More often than not, evil is a person you know, a person that you'd never suspect of being involved intimately with a heinous crime. Sometimes it's the stranger you talk to at a tavern, or the mother of a beautiful baby. Sometimes nature itself can seem to be looking for blood. Worse Than Fiction is a true horror podcast that not only covers horrific crimes, but other truly terrifying situations in unfettered detail. You can find Worse Than Fiction on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else. I'll warn you, though, I don't spare any details. It's not for everyone.